as I was going up to the platform from which I was to give my speech, I was getting surrounded by armed men. It was dark at night, and the leader of this municipal police was threatening to arrest me because I was supposedly doing something illegal. And notwithstanding, I was exercising civil disobedience, no doubts about it. I'm, you know, I'm going against what our men are telling me to do, and they're kind of enclosing and enclosing and enclosing. And uh, yeah, it was scary. Of course it was scary. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Eric Brimen relaying the story of a standoff between him and the Honduran authorities. But that's just one snippet. Our conversation tackles everything from the nitty gritty of capitalism to monopolies to smuggling snakes into the military academy. And just for some context, I was introduced to Eric by Mac Davis. Mac has become a friend. He's the founder of Mini Circle, and it's someone we interviewed for our episode on biohacking. Basically, Mac's looking to crack the code on longevity. And so far in cracking this code, his subjects have been goats. But the end goal is to run trials on humans. Due to that, Mac has done some planning and he's going to a place that can actually make that possible and a little bit easier. This is where Eric comes in. Eric founded Prospera, a special economic zone on the Honduran island of Roatan, which has its own separate set of laws. You may be wondering what exactly a special economic zone is and how it's able to give scientists and businesses a competitive edge. Well, I can't quite give that all away just yet, but let's start at the beginning when Eric was living in Venezuela. I, I, I want to start at the very beginning. So can you tell me a little bit about growing up? What was childhood like for you? What was like the main focuses, the value systems, like all that? The first thing is uh, I was raised with parents that got divorced. So my mother and my dad got divorced when I was between one to three years old. And so my mom got remarried. I was between my mother's household and my father's household, where my mom raised me. She got remarried to a very successful businessman, engineer, sort of top of his class in not only Venezuela, but Latin America. And then uh, my dad is an architect and a lawyer, you know, much more artistic, much more creative, much more emotionally oriented, if you will. Um, my household on my mother's side was much more surrounded by privilege, wealth, affluence in general, whereas my dad's side was more middle class, but very family oriented. You know, when, whenever I went out with my dad, we'd go, you know, as a pack of cousins to the beach, to surf, to, you know, just have fun, do crazy things. I have a hundred stitches in my body from various times I got caught doing things. Easily 90 of them are with my dad and when I was, you know, over the weekends or on vacations with him. You, your, your dad was like, like the free spirit uh, and that's kind of who you were hanging out with when you wanted to, to have fun and, and I guess go surfing. Um, but you also had this the, the wealthy side, right? Surrounded by wealth and privilege. You told me about a story of going to school in Venezuela where your chauffeur was driving you. Could you talk about that story? I must have been between nine and 12 years old. And I was being driven by a chauffeur to the school I was going to at the time. I hadn't finished my breakfast at home and I had to get going. So my mom just kind of heard me off, put the breakfast in my hand as we were driving and the car stops in front of a stoplight. Before I know it, I hear this loud noise you know, on my left ear and I look left and there's a kid probably about my age 
and I can't hear him because my my window is up. But he's doing some weird signs, you know, with his hand. And it must have been two seconds, but it felt like a long time. Just looking at him, trying to make sense what the heck he was doing. And then it dawned on me that he wanted my empanada, my food. Why would he want my food? But then I figured he's skinny, he's hungry. I went to lower my window. And uh, as the window was coming down, the light must have turned from red to green. And the car drove off. And I didn't have the chance to give that kid, you know, a bite of my food or just a whole empanada. I would have probably given it all to him. And, you know, I, as the, drive, the car drove away, I just kind of looked at him and he stood there. And I realized he was about my same age and it made me wonder, what would it have been of my life if I had been the kid on the other side of that window? I was going to school, he stayed behind. What did his life look like? Eric was living in a world of the haves and the have-nots. When he was five years old, Venezuela's inflation rate peaked at 84%, and there were riots in the capital. By the time he turned 11, 66% of Venezuelans were living in poverty. And that brief interaction with the boy in the street had an impact that would outlast any of his mother's lectures. As they locked eyes across the widening chasm of the class system, he was struck by the magnitude of his privilege. This little boy, hardly any different from him, existed in a world completely different from his own. Eric didn't know the relentless aching of hunger, but this boy did. As the car pulled away, Eric caught a glimpse of how profoundly unfair and cruel the world could be. This moment, however brief, planted a seed in his mind, and it would remain there as he entered a new phase of his life. So I went to Military Academy in Virginia. I went there as a 14-year-old kid. And as I was in that academy during the years, that's when Chavez, Hugo Chavez, got elected to be president of Venezuela. What was important for me as a kid and as a person of Military Academy, that just years before that, I had been failing out of school, basically. I mean, I, I... would have easily gotten kicked out of school. Wait, why? I got bored easily. I was smart enough to just get it and not have to do the homework or have to pay lots of attention. And I and I despised the authoritarian way in which classes were being taught by these priests and very rigid Catholic school. And you know everything was very regimented, and I did not fit the mold. So I wouldn't, you know, do the homeworks or or pay as much attention. Instead, I was playing around and. Selling exotic animals to... Wait, you were selling animals? Yeah, that was my business. Wait, when you say exotic animals, what are you talking about? Well, like tarantulas, scorpions, uh, snakes. Were you like catching these in the backyard? <laughs> oh, no, no. I would, uh, I would buy them uh, from a friend who had a ranch and his caretakers would catch them for us out in the wild. Uh, he would sell them to me, say, for $20, and I would sell them to our fellow class for, like, $200. Oh, my God. Okay, so you were more interested in selling snakes than uh, actually doing school. <laughs> How did you end up getting into the military academy instead of like, I don't know, snake school or being your own tarantula catching man? Well, the military academy was not entirely my choice in the beginning. You know, it was kind of like where my mother sent me given where my uh, academic record was at. (laughs) But we we made a deal, you know, she said, look, I think you need to go and see what awaits you if you don't shape up. And I said, okay, fine. So did you leave the tarantulas behind or did you take them with you? I, sna- I, I took snakes with me, which got me in big trouble. No, you did it. <laughs> yeah, it was a big deal. I, I managed to clear customs and everything. You know, this was pre-9-11. The level of checks were far lower. Wait, you you snuck snakes on a plane? Yeah, yeah. No no, no, no uh, randoms. These were boa constrictors and pythons. I, I, I brought three with me. Around the same time that Eric was smuggling his pets across the border, there was something else significant going on. Eric began his time at the academy in 1998, a year before Hugo Chavez was elected president of Venezuela. 
Chavez's campaign had largely appealed to populist sentiment, making promises to crack down on corruption and alleviate poverty. In a country that was suffering in the wake of numerous recessions, Chavez's charisma and promise of hope was well-received. And for Eric, he was the embodiment of action in a moment that required it. If this leader could win an election off these revolutionary ideas, then maybe there was something to them. Maybe Eric's understanding of humanity and leadership had some truth to it. These issues would continue to sit in his head for some time. But for now, Eric had another problem to deal with. Okay, so did you get caught with these snakes? This particular day, it was a random inspection. We were just finishing study hall. Of course, I wasn't studying. I was playing with the snake. And all of a sudden, I hear, everybody ready for inspection. When they did that, everybody had to drop what they're doing and run outside, stand in attention, and wait until the company commander would go inspect the room. So I had the snake in my hands and said, oh, crap. I uh, you know, closed the drawer, put her in there, and you know, she's a chill snake. So I put her in there, and I run outside, and... I was about halfway through the barracks. Eventually, the company commander <laughs> comes to my room and, uh, you know, he goes in and you're supposed to follow and then stand at the side uh, of the bed by your head. You know, and you're supposed to, you're in attention, looking forward and you can't be looking around. But he was checking my closet and I'm looking straight, but down to the far right, I see that damn snake starting to push the drawer open. (laughs) And she's starting to poke her head out with that little tongue, you know, wisping up and down, just curious, right? And I said, oh no, (laughs) this is no good, but I can't look down. And you certainly don't want to look at what you don't want other people to see. So I'm just looking at there and I'm going to feel the sweats a little bit. And, uh, well, sure enough, the company commander now comes and is going to inspect my desk. And as he moves his hand down towards the desk, a bit too close to the snake, she reacts aggressively. He jumps back, looks around, says, what the hell is it? You know, runs out of the room. I guess he must have been one of those people who really doesn't like snakes. And uh, he's saying, okay, so explain yourself. <laughs> like, well, sir... You know, that's my pet. That's your pet? Who the hell has a snake as a pet, you know? <laughs> What's wrong with you? How, how did she end up here? It's like, well, I brought her from home. You brought her from home? You brought her from Venezuela? Do you realize, oh, you know, the chewing me out left and right? Think of a drill inspector just like in your face, you know, yelling at you. What the hell are you thinking? And so at some point he says, ah, so it's your pet, huh? Okay. Well, guess what? Now you're going to have to kill it. You know, and by now I'm like freaking out, you know, I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm going to get kicked out of military school. You know, like this was my last chance. What am I going to do next? And I said, yes, sir. And he looks at me. What the hell kind of person are you? You're going to kill your pet. (laughs) The hell out of my office. Back to my room. And long story short, that snake got donated to science teacher of the school. And then eventually getting so big, he in turn had to donate it to the zoo because... You know, it was just a bit dangerous. (laughs) So you were not one uh, for rule following, to say the least. Here at the Military Academy, who did you meet there? Is it people from all over the world? Is it people mostly from the U.S.? Most students, percentage-wise, are from the U.S., but probably about 20%, 25% of them from Latin America. And a healthy number of those were from Honduras and from Roatan in particular. I ended up doing very well in the school. I became battalion commander, highest ranking cadet. And the person who was my executive officer, the second highest ranking cadet of the whole school, Tristan Monterroso, and he was from Roatan. You know, we we developed a great friendship. And Tristan kept telling me, especially on the latter part of our senior year, about going back to this place that he was from, an island. People there were just thirsty for new opportunities that were entrepreneurially oriented. But unfortunately, they were held back by the legal system that they had inherited. Frankly, it sounded interesting being part of lifting thousands of people up and just kind of turning a whole island into a very prosperous you know, country, basically. 
at this point, you know, I'm thinking of Chavez, I'm thinking of Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Revolution, you know, uh, free the people, right? It was like all up our alley. Yeah, like what if you had the ability to affect change on such a large scale? Like that that's really what it was. Yes. Unlike Tristan, though, I wasn't going back home if I ended up in Roatan. I was going to be going to some Caribbean island. <laughs> and I had already been accepted to Dobson College. You know, my family was clear I had to go to college. And so our paths went different ways. Together, you were thinking about changing Roatan, right? And doing it then, but you had other obligations and you couldn't, you couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. Um, so he was trying to convince me that instead of going to college, we should both go to Roatan and uh, employ everything we had learned in terms of organizational structures. And so just going to liberate an island, why not? Uh, but obviously it was a fantasy at the time insofar as it wasn't anything could have worked, right? It wasn't a tangible plan. It was just let's go and bring freedom to the people. So I ended up going to Babson College and he did go back to Roatan and um, he followed a path of seeking to liberate his fellow men and women. But did you still retain this idea? Like you, you had this dream, you said it was a fantasy, but I imagine even though that you were going to Babson and you had to go to the next chapter of your life, there must have been a part of you that was still somewhat interested in this fantasy, right? To be honest, Roatan specifically was not a fantasy that lived with me for a while. But the issue of solving, quote unquote, solving poverty was, you know, from since I left Venezuela through high school and certainly into college. Um, it wasn't until later that Roatan was again placed squarely in my path. Going to Roatan wasn't exactly Eric's priority at the time, but tackling poverty was. His conviction for long-lasting change echoed some of the early sentiments of figures like Hugo Chavez and Che Guevara, people who sought revolution as a remedy for their country's hardships. But it wasn't a revolution that Eric pursued. Instead, he was determined to spearhead the eradication of poverty from the inside through government policy. And he would begin to set the foundation of this idea during his studies at Babson College. First, I want to talk to you about private cities, because you got interested in private cities again in Babson, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, well, I became interested in private governance. While in Babson, what I was being taught at school is that the world, you know, wealth creation is a wonderful thing, right? That value for value exchange is like phenomenal. Except for when people don't follow the laws. I was being told that that's why you need a government, right? To balance out the greedy business owner uh, who would take advantage of the poor, weak customers. The implication that you need a government so that a business owner would serve their customers, it makes no sense in real life. So when I was asking about that and I was being told that it was a counterweighing force so that so as to avoid monopolies, so as to avoid corruption, so as to avoid, you know, unfair practices. What I ended up always coming back to is realizing that in the middle of all those, say, injustices, government actually was the enabling factor. Like, you know, there couldn't be monopolies if they had not been legally formed. You know, all monopolies, one way or another, that I read about and studied while at Babson were either natural monopolies, which there's no reason why they're unethical or anything like that, and they're very unstable, by the way, or they were artificial monopolies, and those were created by law, by government saying, you and only you, or only a handful of you, get this license to do whatever, telecommunication services, or laying the train tracks or, you know, fill in the blanks, you know, pick a monopoly. And generally they're created by government. So how would you square someone like Google who owns, you know, 90% or 95% of all search? The day that there is an easier way to access information, Google's search engine will be absolutely irrelevant. Now, in the case of Google in particular, I'm not a, an expert, so I would potentially be speaking out of turn, but I bet you that when you go deeper and deeper and discover who has the ability to 
transmit information across state lines, you will find that there are all sorts of legally imposed artificial barriers. They're not like naturally occurring obstacles. They are governmentally created, legally created obstacles. Going from Babson, where you were interested in these private cities, you started a career in private banking. Well, yes, and it's not as if I graduated Babson with private cities clearly in my mind. I graduated Babson with a clear notion that the service of governance was just another service. But in order to deliver better governance, the best way to do it is to make it a business. Eric noticed a flaw in the system. He realized that even though our government claims to create legislation that mitigates injustice, it's actually the cause of a lot of it. As he came to terms with this, he left Babson with a shift in perspective. With a deeper and more cynical understanding of government, he came to the conclusion that a country governed by private enterprise would better serve the population. If he wanted to help solve the poverty problem, then entrepreneurship was the answer. He couldn't go back in time and give breakfast to that little boy, but he could do this, or at the very least, try. And by starting a business at Babson, he was well on his way. Now, armed with tools and education, he was ready to embark on this project. But life had other plans. Yes. I mean, so what happened is I graduated Babson with debt uh, because in the interim, what Chavez was actually doing became evident. Chavez, you know, who was supposed to be prosperity for the people, was actually in the business of redistributing wealth through expropriations and through a bunch of corruption. My mother's side of the family went from being very wealthy to not being able to pay for, you know, my second year of university. Was that difficult for you? Well, then I'll take you back to a very specific moment where everything changed for me. At Babson, it was winter months. This is just off of Boston, so it gets really cold. I had gotten the news a few weeks before that I might have to drop out because, you know, whatever, we, my family no longer could afford it. I was filled with uncertainty and fear and kind of not knowing what would happen next. As I was walking, literally looking down and stepping through the snow, there's this yellow thing that was kind of poking out. It caught my attention because it's yellow. I reached to it, and it was a baseball cap of the brand Life is Good. And I looked at it, and this was probably the lowest point in my life that I could remember up until that point. And I have a freaking baseball cap saying Life is Good. And I wasn't sure if it was just like a big joke you know, or what it was, but what it caused is that it made me super upset at myself because here I was feeling sorry for myself at Babson College, already receiving opportunities that that kid that I remember would have never had access to, you know? And so it was a bit of a slap. I was filled with uncertainty and fear and kind of not knowing what would happen next. Certainly feeling very, very depressed. And sorry for myself and as if, as if, like, that's it, okay? This is the end of your dream. That sometimes when you feel you're at your lowest, you've got to put things in perspective. It's not about doing a competition of who's worse off, but anything can basically be seen as a horrible situation or potentially, you know, a great starting point for what is to come. Whether the life is good cap was a sign from the universe or just pure coincidence, it was a necessary nudge to put things in perspective. At this moment, the world Eric had known his whole life was beginning to crumble. And once again, the image of that little boy from his childhood reappeared. The contrast of their two lives was inescapable. Yes, his life was changing, but compared to that kid, he still had so much. And the cap was a reminder of that. Well, I always find something to take away from founder stories, this one stuck with me in a little bit of a different way. It's easy to get absorbed by our own world, to get so caught up and deflated by life's challenges that we find ourselves on the verge of giving up. But by putting things in perspective, like Eric did, as he peered down at that little yellow cap, perhaps we can emerge from the discouragement that consumes us. Perhaps we can see things from a brighter perspective. So in evaluating the challenge that lay ahead of him, Eric reclaimed his purpose. 
Now, propelled by curiosity and passion, he forged ahead. This is an ad for Roundup for Lawns. It kills weeds down to the root without harming your lawn. It works on crabgrass, dandelions, clover. It works on weeds with names you can't even pronounce. It's Roundup for Lawns. When used as directed, always read and follow pesticide label directions. So now I graduate with debt. And basically, I wanted to be able to make the most amount of money in the least amount of time so that I could be free from debt and then pursue entrepreneurial endeavors. At the same time, I wanted to learn and I wanted to position myself as having the best chances of being a successful entrepreneur. So all that ultimately pointed to investment banking. You know, at the time, investment banking was the highest paid career coming out of any university. And doing mergers and acquisitions was the fastest way to really go deep into companies, understand their business model, deal with CEOs. And so that's what I did. I graduated, went into investment banking. I attempted a couple entrepreneurial efforts here and there. Namely, I joined the family office group from Spain and you know, became a senior member of the team, which allowed me to you know, accumulate more wealth uh, and basically go and attempt uh, some ventures on my own. 2014 comes about. I started another company, which before it really matured, I had an offer for it to be purchased by a competitor. I sold it, joined them, but honestly, I wasn't passionate. You know, it was just like, it wasn't fulfilling. You know, what I was doing had an air of meaning. It was important work. We were helping co-founders find each other and create companies, but it wasn't my calling. And it so happens that that year, 2014, Babson College uh, creates the, basically the Enterprise City Institute. It was a think tank focused on this idea for legal reform in developing countries in such a way that at least within those cities, if not within the whole country, conditions would be optimized to enable entrepreneurial activity to happen and to flourish. It, uh, it reignited, reinvigorated my you know, vision from when I was a student at Babson. You know, I was compelled to not only reach out and be in contact, but um, I created a whole company to partner with Babson. That's what New Way Capital was all about so that we could go from think tank to turning that into a profitable business model where my role early on in partnering with Babson was to provide the, the venture capital vehicles and structure so that those endeavors would actually be capitalized with for-profit money carried out as a, yeah, with a business mentality, as an entrepreneurial endeavor in its own right. Not just a city that would help entrepreneurs, but the city itself as an entrepreneurial endeavor. Eric's vision was to help businesses do business. Seems obvious maybe, but it's not as simple as it sounds. Bureaucracy has a way of complicating things. And Eric wanted to create a space that wasn't as limiting for entrepreneurs. So with his plan set, all he needed now was a location. Back then, there was all sorts of hypotheses as to what would make the best host, you know, the, the best partnering government. We tried a whole bunch of different profile governments in different parts of the world, different cultures, and we ended up in the, back in the U.S., was that we were looking for legal conduits to deliver radically better legal structures and you know, public institutions. But we found a vehicle in the U.S. through the interstate compact clause of the Constitution. And long story short, Arizona was the, the, the best state as ranked by the ideology of their elected officials. And so we sought a meeting with Governor Doug Ducey, we explained to him more or less the legal strategy, more or less the development strategy, and enough things made sense where he gave us a thumbs up. 
Uh, I remember getting a letter from the governor sent to me where he was thanking me for, you know, um, having taken the time to work with him and his team and then was creating a commission and was appointing me as a co-chairman with his chief of staff. Doug Ducey, as governor, deserves a lot of credit to at least open the space for it to be tried. So Eric's proposal was getting attention from Arizona's top official, the governor. But getting his attention and being appointed as co-chairman, that was just the first step. Now came the hard part. So you get the thumbs up, you get that letter, you're co-chairman, what do you do? Though the commission was created, it was created, I think, with an air of, hey, you know, cool idea, worth exploring. Probably will never happen, you know, but why not? We ended up going further than anybody thought was going to ever be possible. So we had to educate, we had to lobby uh, legislators. Um, when we had, you know, sponsors, bill sponsors, both in the House and in the Senate, then, you know, they're the ones technically that are making the introduction of this legislation to their respective legislative bodies. Again, I know most people thought, okay, interesting idea. It would be great if it could work, but, you know, it's never going to pass. And, and yet we did pass it. We passed it in the House of Representatives of the legislature of Arizona after having wow. to successfully navigate through uh, various uh, legislative committees. Certain groups, certain powerful economic groups, whether it was the Chamber of Commerce or the, I remember one of the most effective anti-prosperity district groups was a special interest group representing auto dealers. Once we passed the House of Representatives and all we had to do now is pass the Senate, all of a sudden people were coming out of the woodworks to oppose it and this is a bad idea because it would break up their various special privileges. So let me put an example. The auto dealers. What was their big spiel and why this was a horrible idea? Because years before and for decades, they had negotiated and managed to pass law that made it so that car manufacturers could not sell directly to consumers. They have to go through a car dealer. And of course, they make money out of it. Now, why would they have been against what we were proposing? Well, because in a prosperity district, you have no legal monopolies. There is no legal monopoly or legal restriction from a willing seller selling to a willing buyer. And that would have basically blown a big hole into their protection, their, legal, their artificial legal protection. So, And so we failed in Arizona, ultimately. It seems a bit ridiculous to imagine our legislators basing policy off petty fights, but such is politics. In government, there's a whole unseen world that takes place behind the scenes. And lobbyists are some of the main players in this. Lobbyists are basically relentless idea pushers. Their job is to influence legislation, and a lot of the times, it works. At the end of the day, industries want to keep reeling in money, and the fear of losing money and power creates resistance to change. It reminds me of something Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. In short, those who benefit from the status quo, like the government-backed monopolies, are unlikely to support change if it threatens their privilege or power. So even after passing the bill in the House, a surge in opposition forced Eric to look elsewhere. And the solution would come from an unlikely source. So as we're looking at the possibility of going 5x our effort to do five states at the same time so that out of those five, at least two happen, uh, we get contacted from Honduras. The head of a think tank in Honduras reached out and says, look, we love what you're trying to do in Arizona. And basically, Honduras has already passed the law that you're trying to pass in Arizona. Why don't you come down and check it out? And so I was very interested. We traveled down, met with government officials. And, uh, and that's how we started in, in Honduras. And basically, we realized that there was a whole 
set of different incentives in Honduras that were much more powerfully at play than in the U.S. Namely, whereas in the U.S. most people are fairly well off, right? Uh, in Honduras, um, there's a much higher need for economic development. I mean, there's more poverty, there's more desperation, there's a much higher unemployment rate, right? So they, they were in greater need. And just like anything in business, if you sell to people who really want what you have to sell, you're going to do better than if you, you know. We realized that Honduras did in fact represent, on paper, a better opportunity. So we dropped our efforts to try to lobby five states in the U.S. concurrently and instead turned our attention to Honduras. We really dug deep in seeking to understand what they had already passed. Uh, we built a network of people that had been involved since the beginning on this legal reform. And so you got that charter approved in 2017, right? In the very last days of 2017, yes. The next big deliverable outside of the certificate of incorporation was the approval of the actual charter for the city, which was a second step that was uh, achieved in 2018. The first version was in August of 2000 or September of 2018, and then um, it had to be amended. And that took place in uh, early 2019. My thought of this, right, is it's obviously good for the people, but I imagine in some ways that it undermines the existing political structure and people's political power. And most likely the existing local political leaders might be upset and act out against that. Look, change is scary to everybody, right? People don't like change. The people who like change the least are those who the status quo is working great for them. Without making judgments as to whether the status quo is good or bad or whether the individual people themselves are good or bad or ill-intended, if they're doing well with the way things are now, like changing it is not a you know, a starting conversation that occurs to them as a good idea, you know, especially when they wouldn't be in control of the change. That's natural and it will be true always of everything. And when it comes to profound legal reform, groups that are leveraging the legal system that we've been discussing to their advantage are particularly offended and threatened. They feel threatened by it. So can you tell me about what is like, what was one reaction? When we launched officially in May of 2020, there was a lot of misinformation going around, a lot of sort of invented boogeyman stories of what we would do. And one of the big ones was about supposedly uh, expropriation, right? Eminent domain. It means uh, the forceful taking of property by government for a purpose different than what the property owner has in mind. So where we started buying land, and it was just 60 acres, the opposition started to sell the narrative that we were going to expropriate all the land around us, and so that everybody around us was at risk of having their land taken. And near us, there is a small town, a small village, really not a town, a little village, less than 400 people. Most of those people, the only thing they have is their land right, that they have inherited through generations. In that village, we had been working for over a year and a half, setting up a school, setting up water infrastructure, which did not have running water before we got here. Um, we were investing in, in entrepreneurship training for kids and families. And so we had a great relationship up until the opposition started saying that we were a bad idea because since we were building a city, supposedly, it follows that we were going to expropriate all this land and we we're going to take the land from, from this particular village and anywhere else. So it was a lie. It was a, a misunderstanding at best, but a lie. And, uh, and so those people with whom we had great relationships all of a sudden became very afeared about what we were up to. And, um, and so it was up to us to spread the truth, even though spreading the truth was basically telling the population that what they're being sold was a lie. 
And uh, people who were saying those things were groups in power, including politicians. So they were not interested in us coming out and publicly denouncing what they were saying. Having said that, this particular village was, and we were developing a relationship with them. And, you know, given my background and what I'm all about, I had personally been building a relationship with a bunch of the elders and the population. So when they heard this, they, they asked to they say, hey, is this true? Like, are you guys going to expropriate? Do you even have the power to expropriate? And, uh, and, and would you please come and talk to the village and explain the situation? So I, I said, of course, but the powers that be didn't want us there. And to make a long story short, um, they sent through messengers clear communication that we were not to come out and publicly call, you know, have an event. Eric was fully prepared to tell the villagers the truth, but his opposition wasn't going to make that easy for him even if it meant lying or physically intervening. And this is understandable because the people in power were playing into fears that weren't entirely unfounded. There's a history of indigenous communities in Honduras having their land forcibly taken for use by the government or foreign investors. So they have a good reason to be wary of the people promising economic prosperity. And the opposition knew that. So they used misinformation in an effort to derail Eric's mission. But Eric would not be deterred so easily. Basically, we got a call, a phone call. Somebody in our team got a phone call, and uh, it, it was uh, it was a threat that you know we were not to operate outside of the very tight confines that had already been incorporated into the Prospera, and that if we did, you know, they were going to shut us down. And said, okay, well, but it's not illegal for us to host an event. It's certainly not illegal for us to express ourselves and and spread the truth so thank you but don't worry we will only be operating legally so though we had been threatened we went ahead hosted an event at the village per their invitation to just answer questions and explain things that had been turned and uh you know the political opposition that is in power uh, wanted, in fact, to shut us down. So they sent the police. They sent the municipal police, you know, claiming that because of COVID, such events could not be had. We were, in fact, complying with all the regulations. And when they couldn't get their way verbally, they attempted to shut us down by force, you know, to, you know, to arrest me, uh, to take down the speakers. And, and largely, they succeeded at, at shutting down the events. They did not arrest me. We, you know, had our own security forces on site, which uh, served as a, as a counterweight. And, you know, I was extracted. Was it scary? Sure. Yeah, of course it was scary. Did you like, like, did you fear for your life? Did you fear for your safety? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why? Well, look, I mean, as I was going up to the platform from which I was to give my speech, I was getting surrounded by armed men. It was dark at night, and the leader of this municipal police was threatening to arrest me because I was supposedly doing something illegal. And notwithstanding, I was exercising civil disobedience, no doubts about it. But knowing that we had taken all the necessary precautions to be compliant with the biosecurity standards of masks and alcohol and social distancing and the whole nine yards, you know, uh, notwithstanding, I'm, you know, I'm going against what our men are telling me to do. And they're kind of, uh, you know, enclosing and enclosing and enclosing. And uh, yeah, it was scary. Of course, it was scary. And then as they are not just getting closer, but actually going up the platform where I was speaking from, that's where it really got kind of messy and, uh, you know, where our own security forces needed to jump in and create a physical barrier between me and, and the police. And that's where the extraction took place. It would be, it would sort of be a pity if the story becomes all about like, oh man, you know, police trying to take you down. That just like ha has ever only happened once. And um, importantly, because they were in the wrong, uh, all sorts of very powerful groups came to our support. 
and say that is not the way we do things in Roatan, nor in Honduras, because for all its flaws, uh, especially the you know large political and economic elites, they realize that they cannot mistreat foreign investors. You know, like that's just that's not that's not really what Honduras is about. Not at that level of hostility. They might change the rules on you. You know, they, they might uh, engage in unfair competition by lobbying Congress. I mean, that happens everywhere. But Honduras is not really a place where what happened to me happens generally. Meaningful change does require people to take certain types of risks. Like Prospera is not a typical startup where the risk is not, oh, we can lose a little bit of money. We, we are disrupting a status quo that it has a monopoly of force. And they are heavily influenced by various groups that until they see the truth about what we're doing, will continue to feel that we're a threat. And, and so that's scary. So the only thing we have going for us is that we're not a real threat, that what we're doing is actually good and better for everybody, and that we're working as hard as we can to have the results speak for themselves. Because it doesn't matter what we say, once people form an opinion, you know, it's very hard to change it with words. You can only change it with results. This last bit feels so true. Yeah, promises and reassurance are nice, but they don't guarantee action. And people know what empty promises feel like. Eric knew this and understood the importance of producing tangible results. But with powerful organizations pushing back, he faced a far greater challenge. At this moment, the presence of the municipal police was the physical embodiment of that pushback. As they closed in on the event, with tensions high and frustration mounting, I have no doubt that for a split second, Eric questioned everything. But in the end, it wasn't he who was in the wrong, and the others knew it too. One way or another, he would have that opportunity to tell his side of the story. And that was only the beginning. We were, I think, the only project of substance that was ongoing during the pandemic and growing. You know, we're building, we, we are attracting the highest level of foreign direct investments onto the Bay Islands that they have seen in a long time. And more importantly, in terms of results, we are causing jobs to be created that pay Hondurans more than they thought they could earn while still being in their country of birth. You know, money talks and results speak louder than, than, than words. We're creating jobs that pay more with better conditions in that context that is the best environment for a Honduran to be in within their country. And we're just getting started, notwithstanding um, skepticism, opposition, and the innovative nature of what we're doing where there's no manual. You know, we're constantly having to invent our way forward. So what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned from this whole experience? If you were to give yourself a piece of advice, you know, maybe 10 years ago when you first had this dream, uh, more or less than 10 years ago, right? So what piece of advice do you think you would give yourself? Like what actionable advice? What I tell myself now, which <laughs> I, I, I wish I would have been telling myself earlier, is to just trust, like trust the universe, you know, trust that things happen in a manner that will make the end result better. Even if you can't really see it at the time, and especially when, when you feel you're at your lowest and it's frustrating and it's like, oh man, I'm not getting what I want. Just wait, keep going. And you will realize that that which you were trying to get and failed to get, that failure is better for you than, than having succeeded. And uh, have a bit more patience. Have patience, eventually you'll get there. As Eric said, there's no instruction manual to get where you want to be in life. Years ago, Eric was the kid behind the window, peering out at those who didn't have what he had. At the time, he wasn't equipped to help. He was just a kid himself. 
But being a kid behind the window transformed his perspective. His life didn't just become about opening the window, it became about shattering it. And it wasn't long before he realized that in order to shatter this barrier, he'd have to break out of the system that inhibited progress. In doing so, he founded Prospera, accomplishing the very thing that to many had been unthinkable. At the end of the day, Eric couldn't go back in time and hand over his breakfast to that little boy, but he could look toward the future and think about the kind of lasting change he could make. No one said it would be easy or that he wouldn't get surrounded by the police, but someone's got to make the change. So I guess the question worth asking is, why can't that person be you? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.